we showing up for the community we say that we believe in, that we say we deserve, that we say we really want? And are we willing to be uncomfortable for it? Um, yeah. Not unsafe. Not unsafe. I'm not, I, I don't think safety and discomfort are the same things. And I think folks get it confused. You are listening to PIN America's Works of Justice podcast. I am Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager of Editorial Projects for Prison and Justice Writing, which for over 50 years has amplified the voices of thousands of writers who are creating while incarcerated. Works of Justice spotlights key figures, writers, and artists who are reshaping the conversation on mass incarceration, advocacy, and justice in the United States. In this episode, PEN America Prison and Justice Writing Director Kate Meisner speaks with Lincoln Center Poet-in-Residence Mahogany L. Brown about Quilted Still, a choreal poem based on interviews with justice-involved Black women premiering at Lincoln Center on June 13th, 2022. The conversation begins with Brown reading an excerpt of her recent poetry collection, I Remember Death by its proximity to what I love. If my mother were ever convicted for her addiction like my father, I wonder who I would be robbing now. The data from Fragile Family Studies says my kind of survival displays more behavior problems and early juvenile delinquency. I say, you right. I rode a night with a pistol in my gray hoodie, spitting image of my father, his nickname akin to Boom, his red skin the only thing I remember him towering over me, black hair, red bloodshot eyes, already running, already gone. This was the closest time I ever came to becoming a woman with a number for a name. It is easier than you think to lose yourself in search of resemblance. Politicians with expensive silk ties cut taxes, pad pockets, sterilize would-be mothers, charge their district with the bill, kill reality TV series, suggest art programs to settle the inmates, and then wonder why humans climb the walls trying to escape their own skin after the teaching artist is asked to stop bringing poems that encourage collective behavior. I just got chills and had to take a breath. Mm. Wow. Wow, wow. It just astonishes me what you're able to capture. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being here today. Welcome, Mahogany L. Brown, my old friend. I just want to put it out there that we have a nice long history, so it feels a little bit like coming home, getting to talk to you today. So just to kind of open up the space around this collaboration we'll talk about, that's really your vision that I've gotten to support beautifully and and happily. Uh, Let's just give the listeners a little context. How do we know each other? (laughs) What's the the history here? I'm not certain that we should go that far back. We don't have a lot of time. (laughs) I know that I met you as a burgeoning poet and you were still a student at Pratt Institute, if I'm correct. I was still working at Urban Word, trying to figure out this poet life. And I met this young poet. I think I met you through Aja Monet. I think that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We've been a poet in arms, sister in trenches ever since. My daughter was the first one to call you your given name, right? (laughs) 
Like, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think she was six or seven when this happened. Yes, uh, she took she, that nickname right on. She took it right on. Kate's, Kate's, Kate's. Yep. And now she's <laughs> 25. So now she's 25 and contributing to this project, which is so amazing. Well, thank you for that. And I wanted to start with that less so to bring myself into the fold and more to bring a sense of who you are to our audiences. And I think it's best told from a personal lens. You were the first person to encourage me to utilize my uh, illustration and graphic design skills with my poetry, with my performance. You did my hair for the first feature I had. And you said, you need to have a chapbook for this show. What are you waiting on? And I, I, I share all that because who you are as somebody, as I know you and as many people know you, somebody who really creates room for others. And I think that's really important piece of who you've always been in terms of creating space to witness and uplift. So I wanted to just start with props for the beauty that is Mahogany Brown and how wonderful it is to see you elevating in these ways. Thank you. Let's just jump in now to the context we're talking about today. We're here because we've collaborated on a piece around justice-involved women, and we'll get into that a little later. But I want to zoom the lens out to who you are in the context of this justice work. You've written about being the daughter of a father absent by incarceration, among other personal connections. I want you to ground us in an understanding of uh, of your connection to mass incarceration and how this really became a centerpiece to your work. You're the poet in residence, the first one, and we're at Lincoln Center. You also run an organization called Just Media, which is an open access lens-based archive designed to support advocacy efforts for systemic reform through the art of storytelling. You have many books out in the last couple of years. All that seem to, even if they don't directly address a mass incarceration, it's, it's in the fold, it's in the story, it's in the world of these books. So talk to me a little bit about this community-centered aesthetic, which is a, a way you put it to me recently. How do you weave justice into all of these spaces in such intersectional ways? How did you get here? What's your theory of change? That's a great, I think that's a great question. I, and it's going to take me a lot of time to unpack that maybe the rest of my life. But I can remember thinking as someone who was participating in community projects as a very young person, how inspired and alive I felt. So having the uh, option and opportunities to perform now as an adult, um, or even 20 years before this moment is when I basically started, that was something that I, I always returned to because that was the thing that reminded me that I was tied to a, a place, right? It wasn't just the art that we were creating. We're also creating the safety net for the artist to fall into once they're done sharing. I didn't even have the articulation for it until recently that, oh, I am a communal artist. I feel best when I'm working with others. I feel best when we're challenging the system. And the system is our everyday lives, right? Like, we are conditioned to continue uh, oppressing each other under the guise of professionalism, under the guise of tradition, under the guise of um, individualism. So instead of walking that path of, I just want to be a millionaire so I can get on in and ask that, I, I'm constantly combating this is more than one person. So how, how do I combat individualism? I think collectivity. How do I battle oppression? I think voice recovery. 
How do I make sure that we're not uh, ignoring those marginalized voices? And it's always to, to make certain that when I have a, a stage or access that I bring someone with me. I love that. And I've seen that. And you're, you're well known for that. The amount of people's lives you've touched in the community is, is countless. <laughs> and I think it's actually a really interesting segue, this collectivism, into talking a little bit about this book that came out last year on Haymarket in 2021. I remember Death by Its Proximity to What I Love that you read an excerpt of, very powerful excerpt of here on this podcast. And I'm going to read the, a, a piece of the description and then talk, ask you about it. So it says, I remember death by its proximity to what I love is an extensive poetic meditation on who we think is bound by incarceration. The answer, all of us. Weaving personal narrative, case studies, and inventive form, Brown invokes the grief, pain, and resilience in the violent wake of the prison system. This poem is dirge work, but allows us to revel in the intricacies of our human condition. So this is a, a great entry point, I think, Mo, to hear a little bit about this concept of the all of us. I was really struck by that in the description because I think there's a sense that people have that mass incarceration affects a certain kind of person. It's a certain kind of person's problem. And that's black and brown people uh, and often poor people. And other, other folks who don't fit into those categories seem to think their lives are untouched by it, although we know that that's untrue. Mm-hmm. So I have kind of a multifold question about this book, but also your approach. Talk to me a little bit about how documentary figures into your work, how you make room for the individual within the collective voice, and then how you also turn the collective into the individual, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. This, 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 this kind of we that your frame demands, this all of us, who do you want to read this book? Who do you want it to touch? Yo, I love, I love that that question is so tied to, you know, one is tied to the other. When I did this, this project, I guess I was responding from a place that, that I, I never had the opportunity to do so before, which was residency. I was sitting still. And if anyone knows me, they know I don't do that well. I have a very hard time just sitting still and being. I adopted mindfulness um, practices and meditation 2019, which is when I started this project, because it was so much. I was not just thinking about how I was impacted by mass incarceration, but I was interviewing folks. So that's where the we came in, because it's not just my story, right? And the reason that I think that description says it the way it does, the reason it says it the way it does, not I think, I know it says it the way it does, because uh, of an interview that I did with Miriam Kaba where she said, you know, prison touches us all. And you just have to step back from, from the picture to see it clearly sometimes. Sometimes you're so close on it, all you see is the colors and the textures. But then you step back and you see like, oh, this is an actual, this is an actual picture, right? And in turn, I wanted that to happen with I Remember Death by its proximity. I wanted people to look at it really close, feel the texture, and then step back and realize we're all complicit, all of us, whether we have been to prison, whether we shop at Victoria's Secret, whether we call the cops on folks because, you know, we're walking our dogs without 
their leashes on in a park. We are all a part of that machine that is continuously engaging in pulling us apart from each other. Like the idea is to make you feel isolated. And all of us are a part of it. And sometimes we don't even know we're playing into it because we've been sold or conditioned with the idea that, you know, protect and serve. There's only one way to do that. And there's only one person that can do that. There's only one job position that will protect us and serve us. And we know that that is not true, but there are people in our communities. If we just give them an opportunity to show up that they will, right? There are social workers who can do, you know, some, some labor instead of just putting someone who has mental health issues into prison. What, what if they just need someone that they can actually talk to? What if they need a shelter where they can actually stay and be safe? Um, what are the ways the community can show up rather than banishing a human into prison? So I, I wanted to think of all those small instances, as Lucille Clifton said, come celebrate with me today. Something has tried to kill me and has failed. Those are small deaths, right? She's talking about the small deaths, not that big, large, grand one, but the small ones where you don't even see me as human, where I don't even see me in magazines, where I don't even hear my name, where no one claps when they see, like, those are small deaths too. And I think that this book asks the reader, how are we showing up? for our neighbors? How are we showing up for the community we say that we believe in, that we say we deserve, that we say we really want? And are we willing to be uncomfortable for it? Um, Not unsafe, not unsafe. I'm not, I, I don't think safety and discomfort are the same things. And I think folks get it confused. They, they say, this is dangerous. No, it's uncomfortable. That's an uncomfortable conversation. It's not a dangerous conversation. So like even our language is moving with this attempt to harness the nuance. And it's up to us to spread it all out and show the shadings, like this is the emotional gamut. This is how this works. This is how we work. And we're okay to be messy and make mistakes too. So I I wrote with that in mind because I know that it wasn't just an attempt for me to reclaim my humanity, but for someone else too. We all can do this work together, but I can't just be doing the work by myself. (laughs) <laughs> right. I can't be the only one. And I know I'm not. I, if I, Honestly, I think I'm one of the, the people who is like in the middle of, of like those really heavy hitters doing that work for all of us. You have folks at Zealous. You have folks at Project Mia. You have folks at PN America. Right. Like you have people who have galvanized and they, and they are bringing um, some real dirge work. I, I think a lot about this ecosystem that we we work in and we create as as movement builders, as cultural makers, and the role of the artist is such a specific one. And and I think shifting, and I think so important, and also so slippery. And when I think about this book you did, and then I want to move it into the project at hand. I also think about when we think about incarceration, and I don't mean you and I, Mo. I mean society or folks who are. Who, who feel or maybe have tricked themselves into thinking they're far from the issue, uh, that there's a sense that we think about the one bad act that was done and that defines everything. Right. What we don't see around that is the daughter who hasn't seen her father in years. Yes. What we don't see is uh, the friends and family who put down their whole paycheck just to get you know a half hour in the visit room where they get scolded for holding hands over the table. Yes. You know, we don't we don't see the brutality that continues and, uh, you know, not only affects the, the perpetrator, you know, which we could go into a whole debate around that word itself, but it also affects 
the innocent community around. And that's, again, these are all words that are debatable and we, you know, we could go on forever talking about it. But I think what you're doing is, I think that idea of the, of the up close, far away, you know, like when you look at a Monet painter or, or something in a museum, that texture that comes into relief and then zooms out, is such a particularly beautiful gift of your artistry. And I think about people often want to hear about, you know, artists as witness and how do we do this work with ethics and how do we bring in other people's voices in a way that's honoring and not exploitive. And I would love to hear a little bit from you because it's really relevant to the piece that we're talking about today. You know, how do you sit with those questions when you're making? How do you uh, unpack for yourself the way to do this in a way that is really going to hold community, because I know that's really important to you. It's not something that you do flippantly. You have like a methodology and a series of considerations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for saying that and seeing that. Um, I think I learned the power of poetic energy through performance poetry for the last 20 years. And that poets, we are talking about all sorts of things, anything under the sun, it happens. But what folks don't know when you're watching, like when you're serving it just as an audience to this specific art spectacle, is that there is a lot of unearthing that that artist had to do to even get on stage, right? Like the, the kind of research that is required, it takes the life out of you. It takes the hope away from you if you let it. And that also feels like a design flaw. It feels like it's on purpose the distraction, the destruction. It feels like someone is saying, if you want to hold this, you better wear a certain pair of gloves, but those pair of gloves actually don't exist in on this planet yet. So good luck, right? So you're constantly, <laughs> how, do, how do I keep myself safe and, and hold the moon rock, right? How do I keep myself safe and hold this toxicity and not let it seep in to my skin? The answer is it is impossible. So your job, uh, mahogany, or your job, justice worker, your job, community organizer, your job, equity purveyor, is to put into place your healing. Your healing has to be a part of that work. Otherwise, it's not even burnout. It's, it's burn gone, honey. Like, you're going to be gone. You'll no longer be the same. And we know that as artists that every day we're changing, right? Every, every moment. We're really aware of, of things that we love today and not tomorrow. We're aware of what we could not live without a year ago. Shout out to the pandemic for making that super duper clear. Mm. You find out, oh, I didn't need a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, I didn't need a whole bunch of people. I barely had myself. And a lot of, a lot of my practice and, and understanding comes from that art space. How do I make sure that I'm not just creating poems and, and triggering the audience and triggering myself and then walking away a shell? I put into place, into this practice, into this unearthing some healing time. So if that means I have to get a therapist, that means I have to get a therapist. If I don't know how to do that, I'm not certain. I have to get a, a circle of folks that I trust to hold my things, to carry me back to land after feeling like I've been lost at sea for so long. And I didn't have that for a very long time. I knew to do that for others, but I didn't have it for myself. And for the last four years, I've been super intentional about it. And I think that's the only way I've been able to keep on, quite honestly, is that I give myself permission to tap out and I give myself permission to cry. I give myself permission to feel unwell, 
Like I'm not moving through. <laughs> I don't feel good. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm not moving through those things anymore for, for this art project. That art will remain or it won't. Maybe it goes away, but you know what? It can't go away. What I can't afford to lose me. I'm so happy to hear you say this. Tell me it doesn't feel at first selfish to do that. There, I think there's like a crisis of consciousness that comes when you say, if I don't love myself and love my life, how can I ever create space in the world for others to love themselves and love their life? It's just, I'm not walking the walk then. But everything in our culture says that's ego, says you're not sacrificing enough. It's against the nonprofit culture. Mm-hmm. Right. There's there's so much about it that feels at odds. But really, it is, I think, the most important piece of the whole puzzle. So thank you for saying that. I think it's really informative to other artists who want to take this on, you know, period. Take care of yourself. Don't let someone else's burden become yours because it's not you're holding and then you fall apart and somebody's got to take care of you. Like that chain is 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 prevalent and dangerous. Yeah. And Gwendolyn Brooks said it best. We are each other's harvest. What you do affects me, even if you don't think you do. Right. So I got I need to take care of you, too. I need to look out for you, too. And if I love you, I'm going to call you on it. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back into the circle. That's if I love you. If I don't love you, yeah, maybe I'll let you just, you know, Icarus this bitch. But who wins that way? And and that's another moment that I think requires us to look towards abolition and be like, who's redeemable? Who's worth losing? If we're honest, none of us, right? There there has to be a way. Now, mental health and all those other things, I'm not saying that people don't need more services than a, a, a social worker. Obviously, we know those things exist and we can think about that now. We can start putting that stuff into play now. But the reality is I'm still tied to you. You're still someone's baby. You're still someone's uncle. And you are more valuable than the worst thing you've ever done. And if I can say that about you, then I have to remember that about myself, too. And moving with that in mind keeps me committed to our communal healing. Well, Mo, that's exactly when people ask me why I do prison work. You know, I'd love to have a really politicized answer. But the truth is, is exactly what you're saying. What I've learned on a personal, spiritual level from the work and how people move that have become my mentors and role models is really profound. And if I'm watching people go through this journey and and catalog their change and their self-healing, what's my excuse? I love it. I mean, this is going into all kinds of territory I didn't even realize. But let's get into, speaking of listening, let's get into some quilted steel. So I'm actually going to tell the story of how it came to be. There was a grant going out for partnership from Art for Justice Fund. You gave me a call. What are we doing? And I actually love to reveal this because I think there's also something so beautiful about our 20 plus years of friendship and, you know, what that allows in collaboration when you have two people who who like to move worlds, right? What are we going to do together? And I was sitting here at PEN America with our prison and justice writing work. And we had just gone through our first cohort. I think it was still in action, actually, writing for justice fellows who were a group of highly skilled writers with different connections to justice work, writing about critical issues connected to mass incarceration. And Priscilla Ochen, one of our inaugural fellows, had been working on a project called Under Control, Women of Color and the False Promise of Community Supervision. This is how Priscilla described it. 
This project would expose cash-strapped state and local government reliance on probation and parole as promising antidotes to the crisis of mass incarceration. For the nearly 1 million women who are subjects to these forms of supervision, the embrace of non-custodial punishment is a false promise, one that merely trades one form of non-freedom for another. So Priscilla had been engaging in these deep dive interviews and dialogues in order to write her piece for the project, which ended up becoming a story called Awakening to a Mass Supervision Crisis about one particular interviewee that was published in 2019 at The Atlantic. But I knew that Priscilla had had a dream of turning some of these interviews into monologues. So Mm -hmm. when you gave me a call, I said, I think I got it. I think I got the connection. And beautifully, Priscilla was open. So we handed over with permission, obviously, I I think it's important to say we paid the women for their stories. This is part of our pedagogy, right? You got handed over essentially people's case files and these deep dive interviews that were rife Mm -hmm. with honesty, vulnerability, and trauma, 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 trauma. I mean, unbelievably difficult stories. So what you ended up doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you, you really took their words solely and wove them together into this multi-voice poem that is what will be premiering at Lincoln Center on June 13th. I really want to spend some time in the creation of this, and especially talking about coming from this journey of saying, how do I hold space as a Black woman whose father was in prison, who's connected to the topic at hand, reading the stories of women who share pieces of my story? What was it like for you? How did you approach it? How did you come to it? Give me your creative and artistic backstory to it. Mm. So, yes, all of that happened just like that, actually. Um, And then you handed over all this documentation. And I'd like to say that it was over a couple of hundred pages. And it includes everything from their story to um, I had to start looking at parole violations because there's a lot of shorthand And I was trying to understand that. So I came to it like a student and I left like their sister. At least that's what I tried to do. Why I chose to make it a Corea poem rather than just monologues. I was interested in the becoming of of a body, uh, of a voice on that stage. And I thought what Ntozaka Shange did uh, in the creation of the Korea poem where you are intersecting, braiding, weaving together music, movement, poetry, and you don't know where the voice begins or ends. That's the crux of the Korea poem. I thought that that, would have been, that was the perfect vehicle for these stories because, again, we're intrinsically tied to each other. And it was pretty hard. <laughs> I came in as a student and I thought, oh, I'm going to just read. You know, I've done group poems for the last 13 years. I got that. Nothing. It's going to be easy. Nah, not easy because you're reading lives. You're reading someone's memories. You're reading someone's survival. And even in their survival, you can see those small moments of, you know, that there was this moment where one of the um, the interviewees kept saying the same word. Like, oh, this is crazy. Like, because she couldn't articulate. She was so disoriented by prison and, and the maltreatment. And that was something that just kept going through my head. So I, I pulled that in. And I was like, okay, we just we just need to keep keep those words dancing around us and keep the women voices weaving between each other. 
but I didn't want to re-traumatize folks. I didn't want to re-traumatize the readers of this piece, which are the actors. I didn't want to re-traumatize the, the women that shared their story. Um, I didn't want to traumatize my producer. I don't want to traumatize myself. I read it and I was like, okay, we have to, wh- where's the out? Because they were out, right? They were released women. So life is still happening. And while those things absolutely did happen to them, what was resoundingly clear is that it didn't define them. Like that was not their only purpose on this earth and they were aware of it and they were reclaiming themselves. And so I wanted to show the impact of mass incarceration and the shedding of an incarcerated body. Also it really strikes me when you say, uh, you know, I was doing group poems for 13 years, no thing, right? And the difference between working with a seasoned artist who is used to translating their experiences, who maybe even was getting on a slam stage and getting scored 10, 10, 10 for how much trauma they could put on display and really holding an awareness of that strategy as a strategy, right? As a strategy. Right? Mm-hmm. Versus folks being interviewed. And that is a very tender space that you're entering, right? Because the responsibility is huge. These are not, again, these are not people who are saying, I'm putting my story on a stage, saying I'm allowing this particular reporter access to tell a larger narrative about women like me. And so when you come in as an artist and you're using those words, it strikes me that also anonymizing and making that collective we that we've been talking about this whole podcast is is a gift. Uh, Well, first of all, we ask the women, you know, do you want to be, you know, your names to be owned or not? And and most people were like, you know, no, (laughs) I want this to be done. I believe in it. Yes. But no, I don't. don't, I'm done. (laughs) They're like, "Mm, yeah, I'm done. And the we, the collectivizing relieves uh, the exploitation of the individual while also accomplishing this picture. And I want to bring into that we're partnering with SE Justice Group, a, a L.A.-based organization that does a lot of work around women and girls and anti-carceral work. And we're particularly with this production fundraising for their Black Mamas bailout movement, which happens in May. And I think it's really important to share that some, some of their statistics. So just to give it a shape to the kind of larger dialogue that this choreo poem is addressing. So some of the so last year in their bailout movement, they also did a, a statewide petition with Color of Change. So I'm going to read a couple of points from that. Uh, they say right now, thousands of black women in California are disproportionately being held pre-trial, which means folks haven't been sentenced. They just have been arrested and put in jail simply because they cannot afford to pay bail. But these judges have a, a, the power to stop it. Approximately 44,000 people are locked in cages across county jails in California. Again, these people haven't been convicted or sentenced for a crime. L.A. County, where Black people make up only 9% of the overall population, Black women make up a third, 33% of the population of the women's jail. Some people have been forced to wait more than five years for a trial. That's five years, separated from loved ones, family, and community members, all because they can't afford to pay bail. The harms of pretrial detention reverberate beyond the accused person, often leading to a heightened risk of loss of a job, housing, custody of children, increased risk of future arrest. And just to put into some relief, last year, Essie raised over $800,000 through all of their community partners in the National Bailout Collective. Amazing, right? Amazing. Guess, Guess how many women they got out of jail with that amount of money. 
I'm scared to ask. Three. Wait. What bail is being set at are so skyrocket high. That, that was my reaction to my jaw was on the floor. Wow. Our goal with this piece is not just to open up space for people to understand the, the incredible impact of jail, prison, probation, community supervision on Black women, but also to actually do something with this piece. So the idea of how art and advocacy can marry uh, into effect, I think, is something that I want to hear a little bit about your take on. You know, what is, how do we move beyond just witnessing it and into action? And I think something that's really profound also about the frame of, of this piece, Mo, is that you talk a lot about the humanity of people, right? There's sometimes this divide that happens in the community where people say, well, I want to put all my energy on closing prisons. And, you know, that's fine. We need an ecosystem, right? Great. Go do that. But there's sometimes the energy of, and if you're working with people who are system impacted or working in the system, are you sort of inadvertently holding up the system? And it frustrates me because my feeling is, you got 2.3 million people incarcerated. That's not even counting community supervision. That's not counting friends and family and loved ones. If you are untouched by mass incarceration on a very personal level, you are in the slim minority in this country. That's the reality that we don't address. We don't say clearly. So my sense is that how could you, how could you forget about all the people currently impacted for a future vision? I think it has to be a balance. So within that large scope, talk to me a little bit about arts and advocacy as a, as a parent. Hmm. It's funny because I don't think that there is a formulaic approach. There isn't one way to enter the conversation and there isn't one right way. Do I believe in abolition? Yep. I would love it to happen right now. Is it going to? No because there's more money in, uh, in prison than abolition, right? But, let, but let's also be honest, if it happened tomorrow too. Then what are we gonna do? How, do we don't have housing together. Right. We, we are putting people in prison because they're homeless or housing right. or, right. or mentally unsafe, whatever, all these things that, that you actually push them into by not giving them services as citizens of this country. So if we gonna really talk about blame you know, don't get me started, child. I, that's the church that don't nobody want to go to because we ain't getting out for five hours, <laughs> right? That'll be for our album. That's there a whole five-hour discussion. Yeah. But I do believe that the whole body has to be taken care of. And that includes looking at prisons, saying, please close this bitch. This is not necessary. It is not working. Our people, if they get out, are far more damaged than when they went in. And that has a lot to do with your undoing of their bodies. That's you, right? That's the system. I'm calling it by name. And if the system got a, a face, I'm, I'm going to say the face is America. Like we, I'm, I'm past just blaming one person. It's all of our problem. But there's no one way to address it. Even me, when I came in, I was like, do I get to talk about prison? I mean, I did lose my father, but is that enough? And I felt like I couldn't speak about it for a long time. Wow. Um, and then someone was like, but <laughs> it keeps coming up in your poems. So you're affected, right? So you, you're going to have to do some real work. And because the Art for Justice Fund occurred in the way that it did, um, 
Terrence Hayes asking me, oh, you talk about this. Can you can you say a little bit more? Elizabeth Alexander, I think that at that point she was still at Ford. So that was a large push. She's also Cave Cave Canem. So I was able to see her work up close, being a fellow myself. And I just thought, all right, there has to be a new way of talking about it, of getting into it. I don't know what the formula is, but silence ain't it. That's the one thing I do know. Silence ain't it. So, so the best way to make those things meet and match, one, uh, check your ego at the door, two, put on your, your gloves and, and your, you know, your house cleaning clothes and get to work. And sometimes the work is going to be, oh, I get to share my poem. And sometimes the work is going to be, oh, can I in- introduce you to someone who has a space for these young people coming out of prison that would like to show their art? Well, I'm, I'm going to call out something that you do really well. And I think you might, of course, there's no one way to do it. But I think one particular gift and skill you bring, Mo, is, first of all, the power of your words and the power of your art, of course, hands down. We know that's how you move. But how you really create movement and change on top of that innate skill or the home skill, so be it, not that you haven't been working on that for years, too, is that you are a connector. You really see who should be in conversation with who. I think there's a way in which, like you talk about, again, that up-close zoom-out lens, that you're looking at individuals, organizations, and the landscape. And and the idea of coming in as a student, to me, is such a powerful one, because you're certainly an expert in a lot of different ways in the world. But being able to continually show up as a student and say, who do I learn? What do I notice? How do I uh, respect and uplift and see the players in the room and what they're doing? That's one of your superpowers, being in community and really recognizing where are the gaps and how do I leverage people to be in conversation? That's going to spark something exciting and new and imaginative to get us towards, you know, the ideas, getting our philosophies and our theories into some practice, right? So, yeah, let me just tell you about yourself. Thank you. I love that. I, I appreciate you. And, and, and I love growing next to people like you. You know, like if we are to keep our eyes on the prize, shout out to my Angela, because, you know, I'm going to say a quote, child. But if we keep our eyes on the prize, we have to unhand our egos. We got to let them go. And that means that we can't all be experts all the time. That means we can't all be the boss all the time. And I know I got big boss energy. I don't mind it. I've learned that it's intimidating. And I hope that, you know, that can be worked out in in therapy. But I'm not playing small to make others feel like, (laughs) all right, now you should come in and want me to. Like, I'm not doing that. But I am willing to come in and learn with this big boss energy. Because what I know is the truth, right? The truth of the people is always just like knowing that like who you are. Like I know who I am when I'm entering that space. That's really the superpower. It's a sense of self. That's a superpower. I, I really resonate with that. And it's a place I've come to in my older age as well. And I think the line between spirit and ego is very hard to discern and decipher. Hmm. I mean, there's so much work we can do to look to the people bef- behind us, in mm-hmm. front of us, and even imagining into the future. Why not get some speculative energy in there? Mm. And, and looking at, you know, the atmosphere of the eye is influenced by all of this. So how mm. could it not be beautiful? Mm. How could it not be beautiful? Okay, poet. See what you, know, you get. So we do. Yeah, let me go ahead and <laughs> sage this down, this area right there. Yes. Sage it down. 
Well, I, I feel like I've asked you everything I've wanted to. I feel like we've talked about it all. I can't wait to stage this with you, Mo. I'm just so yeah. proud. And yeah, so much more to do together. You've got Let a day to happen. Thank you for, for making time and reminding me to stay on my P's and my Q's. I just want you to be you, that's all. Model it. It gives me life. Yes. I hope I see you sooner than later. This episode of Works of Justice was produced by Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager of Editorial Projects at PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing and mastered by Sarah Weck. Music used throughout this episode was created by B.L. Shirell and Young Fury of Die Jim Crow Records, the nation's first nonprofit record label for formerly and currently incarcerated artists. Members of PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Team include Mary Concepcion, Prison Writing Program Coordinator, Anjali M. Salem, Program Assistant, Nicole Shawan Jr., Deputy Director, Prison and Justice Writing, Kate Meissner, Director of Prison and Justice Writing, Robert Pollack, Prison Writing Program Manager, Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager, Editorial Projects, Sophia Ramirez, Postgraduate Fellow. Emma Stamen, Postgraduate Fellow. You can subscribe to and hear previous episodes of Works of Justice on any podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. To learn more about PEN America's prison and justice writing, please visit pen.org slash works of justice. That's P-E-N dot org slash works of justice.